Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Really glad uh, to be together today. My name is Matthew, and I'm the pastor here on the east side. And um, thank you for joining us from your homes. I'm excited that in just a little bit, we're going to be at these doors having communion with you. I hope you will get in your car and come and join us. It would be so good to see you. Um, I'm going to be reading today from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, the Gospel of Matthew, first book, you're in New Testament, uh, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, that is, when he heard about the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion for them, and he cured their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, uh, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He blessed and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and all were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for the reminder today that you are a victorious God, a victorious king, that your kingdom, your, um, your will is triumphing, will triumph, has triumphed. God, we are just grateful that as we begin today, and, and probably a lot of us don't experience that. We're not feeling that emotionally. We are feeling actually under the boot of some things. God, we pray that you would stir in us today faith and hope and that we would come to grasp and believe and to really receive into our spirits this word from you. God, thank you that we are citizens of your kingdom. Help us, Father, to learn today from your son how to walk in his ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to begin a series today, and we're going to call it Citizens. And if you're like a Trinity normal person, like regular, you're thinking, why are we naming this? We don't name series. And you're right, we, we typically, we haven't. Um, but we're doing it because every week we want to remember that these gospel texts that we're in every week are not just some sort of random collection of stories and teachings. They are actually tied together by this central idea called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew typically uh, says it, the words are interchangeable. They work both ways. But the kingdom of God was Jesus's social, political, sociopolitical vision. And it was, uh, most of his teachings were actually a word spoken in comparison to, and even in contrast to, the socio-political visions of his day, especially those of his contemporary conservative Jewish counterparts, or even the occupying Romans in his land. And so Jesus' vision around what the kingdom is, uh, and what it means to be his disciple as a citizen of that kingdom, is really at the, the, the heart of almost everything he did and said in his teaching. And we will see, like in these next couple months as we talk about this, that Jesus' vision around the kingdom is not just a description of something that's coming, but it's an invitation into something that is 
right now, that's happening in our very presence. We don't have to wait to experience it. It is not like the kingdoms of this world, however. It doesn't have a flag. It doesn't have a capital city. There is no palace. There's no currency. There's no military. It is an invisible community of people who have all determined that Jesus is their king, and they're going to let him determine the grid through which they live uh, in, in the world. And these people who are part of this invisible community are called in the Bible. They're called disciples of Jesus. They're called Christians, um, and they're called in Philippians 3.20, citizens. We are citizens of a kingdom. Now, the question, of course, um, is what is a citizen? And a citizen, uh, just to begin with, a citizen is a person who has rights associated with his citizenship. Because he's a citizen, there are certain things that he has access, she has access to. A citizen is a person who's going to have a homeland, a place in which they belong. A citizen is someone who's going to observe and obey the laws of their homeland, of their home country. And finally, a citizen is someone who, uh, at its best, should be engaged in the life of, their, uh, of the place in which they, they call home. They should be active and engaged in these things. And this feels particularly apropos in this moment right now um, that we're living in because of what is happening in our country and in our world. But what is happening in our country around politics, around uh, race, around medicine and science, around education, um, like everyone's cards are getting called in this moment. You know what I mean? Like everyone is having to like their allegiances, the things that will, uh, the kingdoms in which they are citizens is like they're getting called on the table. And if you spend any time on the computer uh, or on a screen, any time, you will see that everyone's cards are constantly being called. Oh, you're a part of that kingdom. I'm going to put you in this, uh, in this tribe, therefore. And this is a really hard time to therefore be a citizen of any kingdom because tribalism and cancel culture set the tone for all of our engagement. And it is, um, it is like, it is a hard time. It's a toxic time out there. It's a scary time to, to engage. And yet Christians are called to be citizens of the kingdom of God, not meaning that we're called to be separatists from the moment that we're living in. That's not true at all. We're not called to be outside of the culture that we're living in. We're called to be in the middle of the culture that we're living in, but seeing it and functioning in it through a lens, a grid that Jesus gives his disciples, his church, to live in, which means that, that Christians, um, in, Christians participate in culture. Christians vote. Christians protest. Christians build businesses. Christians create art. Christians build houses. Christians are good neighbors. Christians care for the poor. Christians do all these things. Citizens of God's kingdom participate and engage in all of these things, but not, first and foremost, as citizens of the United States of America, not as, first and foremost, citizens of the city of Atlanta, but people who are seeing it through a different lens and have different ends and purposes in mind. Because we believe that the kingdom that God has started on the earth through Jesus Christ has no end. And that it is the kingdom around which we have gathered and we have chosen to find our identity. So with that brief introduction, the next eight weeks we're going to be in this sort of study. We're calling it Citizens. And um, we're going to jump in today with this teaching, this very famous, very familiar story of the feeding of the 5,000. If you've uh, been in church like once, you've probably heard this story. It's so common, and it's in every gospel. There are four biographies of Jesus' life in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all have this story, which is really rare. There's like a few times that happens in the whole Bible. And so it must be important. And yet, if we're honest, Maybe it's because it's kind of like familiar, but the feeding of the 5,000 is not as impressive as some of his other, you know, miracles. I mean, arguably, 
raising someone from the dead feels more impressive to me than feeding a bunch of people. And yet, this is the one that gets all the mentions. This is the one that gets all the airtime in every single gospel, which I think is worth asking, like, why? And I think that if we can understand why, it'll help us understand a bit of, of, of this idea of kingdom. I think the reason that Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000 from five loaves or five rolls of bread and two smoked fish is in every gospel is because of the scope of it, because of how large it was that everyone who saw it experienced something miraculous in that moment. We're told that 5,000 men were there, and then it says, and this doesn't count the women and the children, which is, of course, as an aside, sad that even the Bible doesn't count women and children at this point. And I know it's cultural and all that, but it's just a reminder to us that the world's history has been marked and shaped by inequity among human beings from the very beginning and to this day. But there were, there were 5,000 men, which means there were 15,000, 20,000 people there at this, and they were all eating this food that came from this little kid's sack lunch. And somehow they all left full and there was tons of leftovers and that is pretty momentous. Like that's something worth mentioning maybe four different times in every gospel. And yet the question is, is, what does this have to do with the kingdom? What does this big, large communal miracle have to do with the kingdom? So the first thing I want to say is that there are, we see in this, there are basically two ways to view the world. There is a, a lens of scarcity through which to view the world, and there is the lens of abundance. The lens of scarcity and the lens of abundance. I've talked many times here at Trinity about what's called imagined scarcity. Imagined scarcity is the belief that there's not enough, there's not going to be enough. Um, and imagined scarcity is what controls um, our immigration policy. Imagined scarcity is what controls our markets and our, sharp, our shopping habits. Imagine scarcity is this fear that there is not enough resources and therefore we have to hoard, we have to be afraid, we have to block out, it creates competition. And then there's also actual scarcity. You know, like it's not inappropriate to say five rolls and two fish is not enough to feed 20,000 people. It's enough to start a riot. It's not really good for much else than that. That's about how much food it is. And yet, uh, in Jesus' kingdom, in his world, it was plenty. It was all that was needed. Um, now, scarcity is not something that just lives abstractly out there. You know, It's also really close to home. In fact, I know that in this season in particular, the scarcity that people are experiencing feels very personal. A lot of you are experiencing a scarcity of personal touch, of, of physical presence with people. I know many people in our church who live alone, who've been by themselves now for months uh, in, in houses or homes, or even with roommates that they don't totally get along with and like now they're just they're just dying for like a hug like for for someone to be on the couch with them and yet we've just had to create all these limits and boundaries around ourselves and there's a lot of there is a scarcity there so on the other end of the spectrum a number of you have had no have had a scarcity of space of privacy of quiet if you find yourself in a little house overcrowded with children the, the thing that you would give anything for is, is an empty house for half a day and yet it's impossible in this season. And so there's a scarcity of privacy. The only time you find a private moment is in the shower, which doesn't feel like that great of a, of, of a space. You're looking for something else. We're also experiencing a scarcity of energy in this season. I talked to so many who just don't have the energy or the reservoirs to keep doing the things they were doing before. There's a scarcity around actual resources in this season. So many in our church are suffering financially in this time. They've been furloughed or they've lost their jobs and 
our Love Your Neighbor Fund has actually been used to help to do that, to keep people from being evicted and to pay bills because we understand that like there's a scarcity of resources right now in our church and in our world. And it's easy to, to let scarcity shape my perception of the world. It's easy to let scarcity become the lens through which I am uh, seeing life right now and for it to tell the story about what is real. And the story it is telling is that there's not enough. And because of that, I become afraid. My faith dwindles. I'm not a very good neighbor. But then there is the vision of Jesus. The vision that Jesus embodied. He always knew that there was going to be enough. He always had this sense that there would be plenty, which is why he says things in Matthew 6 like, um, why are you worried about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink? Your father knows what you need. Like, isn't the body more than clothes? Is not the stomach more than food? Your father... uh, feeds birds. He clothes fields with flowers. He knows what you need. You don't need to worry. Jesus always had his eyes um, open to the opportunities before him because he knew that he was walking on the surface of his father's uh, world. Walter Brueggemann wrote an article years ago that I have referenced here before, but I I think it's worth uh, returning to, called The Liturgy of Abundance versus The Myth of Scarcity. And this is a quote from that article. He says, we who are now the richest nation are today's main coveters. We never feel that we have enough. We have to have more and more, and this insatiable desire destroys us. Whether we are liberal or conservative Christians, we must confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity, a belief that makes us greedy and mean and unneighborly. The conflict between the narrative of abundance and of scarcity is the defining problem confronting us at the turn of the millennium. The gospel story of abundance asserts that we originated in the magnificent, inexplicable love of God who loved the world into generous being. And then he concludes by saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if liberal and conservative church people who love to quarrel with each other came to the common realization that the real issue confronting us is whether the news of God's abundance can be trusted in the face of the story of scarcity. What we know in the secret recesses of our heart is that the story of scarcity is a tale of death, and the people of God counter the tale by witnessing to the manna, which I love, which is, of course, an, uh, an allusion to the story of the children of Israel who for 40 years wandered the wilderness and yet always had full stomachs because God was able to provide bread even from the sky, because God is never limited by our scarcity. He always is able to give us exactly what uh, we need. Which leads us to the second point, that this abundance, this worldview that Jesus embodied is best experienced in community, which is, of course, what we see in this um, story. Jesus making bread and fish is a pretty cool miracle, but him making it for 20,000 people is exceptional. And when Jesus had the opportunity in the wilderness with the devil, when the devil was tempting him, you may remember the story, he's like, turn these, uh, these rocks into loaves of bread. And he's like, I don't, I don't need bread. I have the word of God. I have everything I need. Man does not live by bread alone. Jesus had the chance to do this before. He had the chance to make food, and he didn't take it. So there's something actually about this miracle that's meant to strike this, this communal chord in us where we're meant to, to understand that God is, God is forming a community, a family, a, a, a people for himself a, who gather around a table and um, who feast. And why is that important? 
Well, we're entering the fall together. Believe it or not, we are actually entering a new season. It just feels like one day rolls into the next. They all feel exactly the same. We're living in some sort of strange dystopian Groundhog Day. But, but we are actually entering into a new season of the year. And school is starting for many even this week for some of us. And, and the question is, is like, how are we going to do this as citizens? And I called you last week to what we're calling this corporate rule of life, which includes find people to do this with, commit to a community. And the reason why this is so important, why we need a community right now to do this with, is because everything that's going to happen in the next three months is going to try to convince you that you are surrounded by enemies and not friends. That actually what is more true about you is all the things that divide you from those who are close to you, even in our very church. We have to remember, we have to fight to remember that we actually belong to one another. That does not mean that we're monolithic. It does not mean that we're a homogenous group that all think and feel the exact same way about everything. We don't. Even our staff team has different opinions about some significant things. But we love each other and are united and belong to one another because we are participants in the same kingdom, oriented around the same king, whose worldview is, is the grid through which we are seeing the world. And you and I are going to have to fight to believe that. You and I are going to have to do the work to imagine that that is true, which is going to involve us getting together and hashing stuff out with one another and choosing love and choosing to be generous in our opinions of one another as opposed to choosing to be critical. Choosing to do, as, as Jenny reminded us a couple of weeks ago, the Martin Buber thing of like the I-thou, like you are a person, you are not an it, but you are a person, you are a thou, and therefore I engage with you as a person, as a thou. And when all we can fear is the scarcity, all we can feel is the scarcity, and the story of scarcity seems to be the loudest thing in our ears, that's when the community comes around us and practices what Brueggemann calls the liturgy of abundance over us, that reminds us of what is true, of the world that we're living in, that we live in a world in which Jesus' Father is King. This is a good world. And so finally, I just want to say in closing this, this kingdom that we are calling you to be citizens of is real, it's material, it's consequential. Just as the bread that, and fish that Jesus gave to these people that day was real and material and actually filled a real need in them, the kingdom of God is real. It's very easy to be cynical right now. One of the things that we just keep hearing from, from even the people in our church is that it's just very easy to be cynical right now about this whole thing. Because as we've entered the season, the, the things that I thought were there, the church that I knew to be there isn't there anymore. And it's just easy to question, like, does this even matter what we're doing? Is anything even real? Why am I sitting at home right now watching church? What's the purpose of any of this? And I just want to argue and fight for you here. Jesus believed that the kingdom of God was the truest and most defining reality in which someone could live. And we believe that the kingdom that we're choosing to be a part of is not just some good idea that lives out there, but it is a real movement on the earth that is going to, in time, conquer the world through love. It's going to heal and unite and, 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 and save and rescue the world with love. And so we are active participants and engagements of this, and we choose to fight against cynicism and skepticism and the things that say this is really just a, this is, that this doesn't really matter. We say, no, it does matter. Jesus knew it, ma it mattered. It's a real, material, consequential thing that you and I are being called to, as real and as material and as consequential as every other kingdom that is demanding your allegiance right now. And so the question for you and me is am I willing to do the work to stay faithful, as we said last week, to build my life and construct it on the trellis that God has put 
in the church scattered right now so that I can remain rooted, citizened in that kingdom. Abundance is a decision. It's a choice. It is faith. It is belief and a recognition of the fact that the God of the Bible is a God who always, always, from the beginning to the end, finds his people and in the midst of slavery, in the midst of of wandering in the, the desert, in the midst of exile, in the midst of persecution, in these places, in the midst of imprisonment, in these places, God meets and feeds and leads his people. That's where he finds them. It's not... We're not just waiting to get to some promised land. God is a God who finds us in the hard spaces and causes his people to have everything they need to abound right here, right now. And all of us are giving allegiance to one thing or another, to popular culture, to rugged individualism, to a political platform, to a sexual expression. All of us are giving allegiance to something right now. And Jesus says, will you come and will you trust that my kingdom is actually the thing you're looking for? Will you center yourself and anchor yourself and find your identity in, in that? The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ were the death blow to all other kingdoms, to the empires that used intimidation, to the systems that sought to, to earn their way to God. It was the death blow to all these things, to any culture of fear, to imagined and actual scarcity. How can anyone believe in scarcity when the end of the story is resurrection? And so we invite you to practice with us in this season, to be a citizen, to this week adopt a framework, a a, a lens of, of abundance through which you begin to see your life that you actually have right in front of you right now, everything you need. Because God is for us, and our Father is good, and it is his world that we are walking on the face of.